Oh, good afternoon. We're in John's Gospel and we're in chapter 3 and verse 22. After this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside and he remained there with them and was baptising. John also was baptised in Aon near Salim because water was plentiful there and people were coming and being baptised for John had not yet been put into prison. Now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan, to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing and all are going to him. John answered, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. May the Lord bless the reading of his holy and inerrant word. Most of us are drawn to greatness, even if we're not ambitious ourselves for greatness. We do like to see it and marvel at it. Sports fans marvel at great individual or team performances. If sport is not your thing, then it could be something else. It can be opera, music, you can go to an art museum, marvel at the Dutch or Italian old masters and look at the exquisite use of light or shadow and see what the artist was trying to convey. Or closer to home, some of you like military history and Appreciate the genius and the greatness of strategy and the great flanking manoeuvre, for example. We do aspire to greatness. Even if we're not particularly ambitious, we enjoy being in the presence of greatness. It's election year in America and the President of America campaigned four years ago on the slogan, Make America Great Again. What is true greatness? Well, let me tell you who Jesus thought was great and that should matter to us I hope because whether you are a believer or not you are listening I would guess because you like Jesus so it'd be important to recognize who Jesus thought was truly great we I think we all agree that we have to learn from Jesus's definition of greatness this is what Jesus said Luke 7 and verse 28 and in um, I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. No one is as great as John the Baptist. What made John so great? Well, Jesus had in mind the mission of John. His mission made him great because he was the forerunner to prepare the way for the Lord, the Christ, the Messiah himself. That's the main thing. It's not the only thing. John's greatness consisted of two things, his mission and his meekness. And that's why Jesus followed up by saying, yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. As great as John was with his unique mission to prepare the way for the Messiah, you can be even greater if you will be least in the kingdom of heaven. You want to be impressive, great in the world's eyes, look to money, to fame, to accolades, to followers, to accomplishments. If you want to be impressive in Jesus' eyes, look to John the Baptist. I wonder 
in all your striving and in all your inspirational films and in all that you hear from teachers and parents. I hope somewhere this message of true biblical greatness has been placed before you because it is a greatness that is available to all and found in very few. And often those that are greatest in the world's eyes are far from great in our Lord's eyes. What I'm going to do this afternoon is explain the context of the passage, then show you four things that John says is a demonstration of true biblical greatness. Let's have a look at the setting. In verses 22 through 24, beginning in verse 22, Jesus and his disciples now go into the Judean countryside. It says, after this. So this is after chapter 3, with Nicodemus and God so loved the world. Sometime after that, we don't know how many days or weeks, they go into the Judean countryside and Jesus is baptising. There is an important clarification in chapter 4, verse 2, which tells us that Jesus himself did not baptise, but only his disciples. So Jesus is leading the baptismal scene, but it's his disciples who are administering the water. Jesus is there, John is there at a place called Aon near Salim. Aon means spring, Salim means peace. So it's a place of plentiful water, many places where you can perform this baptism. Let's look for a moment at verse 24 because the note in brackets for John had not yet been put into prison. In the original Greek, there weren't brackets, of course, but it was the way the translators have decided it's the best way to dis- understand the note that John had not yet been put into prison. See, John is baptising people. Jesus is baptising people. The original readers should have understood very clearly that he is cl- John is not in prison yet. John the Gospel writer is saying about John the Baptist that he's not yet been put into prison. So that should be you know, apparently obvious, why does he include the notes? Well, the comment presumes that the original audience was familiar with the general facts and timelines conveyed in the other Gospels. That is to say, John, who wrote this, understood that he was writing to, as best as we can figure, almost converts or new converts, whose desire was to be established in the faith. Whoever hears these stories understood something of the gospel story and knew something about John the Baptist and how he did end up in prison. And more than that, he ended up being beheaded by Herod. So John, the gospel writer, puts the note here to indicate to us that he understands the timeline. Because here is what we may not realise in reading the gospels. And often they just sort of blur together. Is that Matthew, Mark and Luke, the synoptic gospel writers, have a certain timeline which track with each other and John puts things in a different light. So, in Mark 1 verse 14, Jesus, it is said, started his ministry after John was arrested. In Luke chapter 4 and verse 16, It tells us that Jesus started his public ministry in Nazareth after the temptation in the wilderness. And we read again in Matthew 4 verse 12 that Jesus began his ministry after being tempted in the wilderness and after withdrawing to Galilee and after John had been put into prison. So the timeline in Matthew, Mark and Luke is that Jesus began his public ministry in Galilee after John had been put into prison. 
John the writer of the fourth gospel is anticipating that there may be some confusion that Jesus was actually not doing his public ministry until after John had been put into prison. And John the author is saying this happened before that. See what John tells us that it is only hinted perhaps in the other gospels is that Jesus had a public Judean ministry prior to his public Galilean ministry Judea being in the south, Galilee in the north, Galilee being from where G, you know, from is where G, where he was from, where he grew up around Nazareth, the Sea of Galilee, Chorazin, Bethsaida, Capernaum, the cities in Galilee. So it seems what happens is that Jesus had a public ministry in Judea where he overlapped with John the Baptist for a time. And then owing to John being put into prison, Jesus withdrew for a time because it was not yet his time to be arrested and put to death. He withdrew for a time and launched the next phase of his public ministry in Galilee, which we see in the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark and Luke. So the comment in verse 24 is John's way of signalling to his audience this happened before most of what you know about Jesus's public ministry. This was before John was arrested. So we come now to verses 25 and 26, this controversy. In verse 25, we read about a discussion between John's disciples and an unnamed Jew. We don't know what it was about. It's about purification. We can speculate. The Jews in the first century had many purification rites. The things that you had to do to wash your hands before meals. They didn't have hand sanitizer, no coronavirus in those days. And there was ways your clothes had to be purified. There were certain things you had to do to your, from your head to your toes to render you clean and pure. So there's probably some dispute about that. And how does that correspond to this baptism that John is doing? And is it the same thing or are they different? There's a discussion. Which leads us to verse 26. And that somehow in this discussion of water and purification, the disciples to John come back and now they raise another issue related to baptism. And it's a classic case of jealousy, territorial ministry, not from John, but from his disciples. In verse 26, they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan to whom you bore witness, look, he's baptizing and all are going to him. Rabbi was not a formal um, um, designation. There later on would be an ordination process to become a rabbi. But here, anyone who was your teacher, someone you followed, you called rabbi. So they were appealing to John's ego. You bore witness to him. You introduced him to the world. Now he is baptizing. Rabbi, this is your gig. You are John the Baptist. And then look at the last line, and all are going to him, an overstatement, hyperventilation. They're worked up, and that sets the stage for this controversy, and you can hear it in their own words. The competition, and we know it in our own hearts, the competition that comes out in the human spirit. And it's what makes John's words so amazing, and what makes John such an example of biblical greatness. So let me show you four things that John says in reply to his disciples hyperventilating. Verse 27, verse 28, verse 29, verse 30. Each verse contain something that John says in response to his disciples' hyperventilation. First thing he says, 
in verse 27 is a wonderful response. It's all from God anyway. John said that a person can't receive one, one thing unless it is given to him from heaven. You just see what he's saying to his disciples. What I've been doing, what I have is a gift from God. My calling is to prepare the way. Jesus, the Christ, what he has been given from God and his way, his calling is to be the way. My calling is to prepare the way. He is the way. That is God's plan. And you can hear them. You can just hear them. Well, John, no, he's your protege. And John said, no, he is the point. He's not my protege. Now, listen, friends, is that your attitude, my attitude, when you see others succeed? Now, it's one thing if you see uh, one other, uh, uh, other succeed in something that you aren't very interested in at all. Ski jumping, I don't feel threatened at all if I see a great ski jumper. But you get people who are preaching, well, that's my, it's what I do. Or you can line up what it is you do, your vocation, your career, the thing that you are best at. And if you are really good at music, you don't get bent out of shape at the person who runs really fast around the track. But if you're really fast around the track, then you may do. One of the reasons it's so hard to be a mum is that many other people your age are a, have the same vocation. So mums look at Facebook and see everyone else has the same job that I have, the same calling that I have. So you get that comparison, you know, who, you know, who's doing it better, how am I doing, who's failing. You see, the bottom line is it is hard for the human spirit to celebrate the success of others, especially our peers. When you find that others seem to have more than you or more recognition, more gifting, more opportunity. Is your first response, well, it's all from God, because that is what John says. Just think about the parable of the labourers in the vineyard. You get the people who just come at the 11th hour and they get a denarius the same as the people who've been there for 12. And the people who've been there for 12 grumble to the landowner. We've been there for 12. He's just shown up. They get one denarius. So do we. What gives? And the landowner says, do I not have a right to do what I want with my money? Or are you upset because I'm generous? You're upset because you think I'm too kind to other people. Friends, do you see the world around you with the goggles of fairness or through the glasses of grace, which makes all the difference? See, some of you wake up in the morning and it's those fairness goggles. And I'm not saying that we turn a blind eye to real injustice, but I am saying as a way of life, many people put on the fairness goggles. Who is getting what? What is going on? Why are they getting more than I? And what is happening over there? Instead of the glasses of grace that says, not one thing have I received except it be given to me from God in heaven. Every good and perfect gift comes from the Father of lights. That's what John says. What a tremendous gift it is when other people cheer us on. I have been so blessed in my life to have older mentors and pastors encourage me and cheer me on. And it's one thing to be complimentary to the people older than you. It's another thing when it's your peers or those younger than you and you say, well, they have more gifts or praise the Lord for what he is doing. If we're great, like John is great, we love to hear that. We love it when people surpass us in gifting and ability and influence. We cheer on one another. It's easier to cheer for each other when we realise we're on the same team and all that we have is a gift from the same God. 
Verse 28, the second thing that John says in verse 28. The first thing in verse 27, it's all from God anyway. And then verse 28, I already have told you I'm not the Christ. Now, would we not see this whole situation as a tremendous threat, even if our theology was straight enough to know what I am supposed to say? I know that I've been preparing the way and he is the Messiah. I understand that. But in our hearts, there would be, Jesus, your time is coming. Do you have to be baptizing right here, right now? I mean, think of the scene here. You have two rabbis. You have two sets of disciples. You have two crowds. You have two scenes of baptism. John was there before. And now his younger cousin is sucking all the oxygen out of the room. And John's disciples want to know what you're going to do about it. And John says, what I'm going to do about it is I'm going to step aside. I have a good purpose. It is a divine purpose to prepare the way. I have not been sent to be the way. I prepare the way for him. So listen, you have a purpose. It is a good purpose. It is a divine purpose. God has you in the place you are for a reason. The school that you're in, the family you were born into, the job you are in for a reason. He has a purpose for you and your purpose is not to be the Christ. It is not my purpose either. It is not to be the Christ in your marriage, not to be the Christ in your home, not to be the Christ in your school, not to be the Christ in your church. Now, you can take that as very discouraging. I thought I was pretty special. Or you can take it as unbelievably good news. John has already professed it and reminds them again. You bear me witness, my disciples. I told you already he is the Messiah, not me. Then he makes a third statement. So he says in verse 27, it is all from God anyway. Verse 28, I already told you I'm not the Christ. And then I love this one in verse 29. I'm just thrilled to be the best man. It's really the technical term for what we would call in our day the best man. In 29, the friend of the groom. The friend of the groom is the one who stands by. The one who makes the preparations. The one who ensures everything is set up. The one who makes sure that the wedding ceremony is a smashing success. And if there is one central rule, okay, you can mess up a lot of things as the best man, but the one unbreakable rule is that you do not marry the bride. A lot of best men, they stumble along. You hope that they remember the ring and don't look too goofy and don't faint. But the thing they really cannot do is marry the bride. There were actually ancient laws against this that under no circumstances was the best man to marry the groom's wife. Judges 14 verse 20 tells us and Samson's wife was given to his companion who had been his best man. The scene that John is describing would have been comical if it were not so tragic. He says the one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The bridegroom gets the bride. I'm the friend I stand in here but I do not get the bride. That is not what the best man does. You can picture some awkward scenes can't you? The bride walking down the centre of the church coming down arrayed in a splendour and beauty and glory and the best man just gives the bride his card and says call me or another be a terrible reception if the best man breaks into the first dance or it'd be awful if the best man suddenly stood beside the bride and cut the cake no man it's not your day and yet we can act that way with christ 
We think our ministry is about people recognising us. We want the people that we are discipling to need us as much as they need Christ. So we do things and the reason we do them is so that we look good. We want the people we pastor to love us as they love Christ. John would have been well aware that in the Old Testament, Israel is often regarded as the bride of Yahweh. Isaiah 54, Ezekiel 16, Hosea and Gomer. Or in the New Testament, Ephesians 5, the bride is for the groom, the groom is for the bride. Do you know your place? Do you know your job? Do you know your spot in the bridal party? Rejoice for people to meet the groom. Happy for the bride and the groom to fall in love. John says in a moment of remarkable humility, I'm just thrilled to be the best man. John says I couldn't be happier to step aside and have the groom take centre stage. He says, if you look at verse 29, therefore this joy of mine is now complete. His disciples have the idea, John, what is going on? You must be miserable. Excuse me. (coughs) What is happening? You are the Baptist. He is baptizing. What are we going to do? And John says, I'm going to rejoice. I can. I've never been happier. My joy is complete. What completes your joy? For most of us, it's the next thing. If I could get a better job, if I could just be engaged, if we could only be married, if we could just have a child, if we could get rid of the children, if I could just retire. It's always the next thing to complete my joy. And John says this makes me ecstatic to step aside and point to Christ. The lie of the devil is you'll only be happy if you fight to be number one. The freedom of the gospel is to say that you die to yourself to be least, to be last. It's not an invitation to be miserable. It's an invitation to true joy the world doesn't understand. It isn't about me. It's not my party. I'm not the main attraction. I get to be at the party. Praise the Lord. I rejoice to know the groom, to hear his voice. And finally, verse 30. He must increase, but I must decrease. This is true greatness. Your favourite athletes, your favourite film stars, your favourite politicians, your favourite heroes. They may do great things in a certain way, but no hero is great unless he is humble. You're not great unless you are humble. One commentator says the last words of John to be recorded in this gospel from surely one of the greatest utterances utterances ever to fall from human lips. And that's right. He must increase, but I must decrease. Is this your prayer? Is this my prayer is this your purpose you may be familiar with john piper's line god is most glorified in us when we're most satisfied in him it so mitigates against everything in our human nature when you are a child and you go to the park and there is somebody at the slide and you're waiting to go up or at the pool and what do you say get down it's my turn and they're just waiting up there loitering get down it's my turn That's what you think as a child. We think the same as adults, but we just become a little bit more socialised about how we say it. That's the human heart. Get down so I can get up. Biblical greatness is the opposite. Let me get down so Jesus can get up. Is that your purpose and mine? Is that your prayer and mine that I will bend down if it means I'm lifting up Christ? They asked, what are you going to do about it, John? He's baptising. And John says, I tell you what I'm going to do. 
I'm going to lay myself down and I'm going to lift Jesus up. And you know what? I'll be wonderfully happy doing so. You've been told your whole life that you're special. And you are special, but you're not a saviour. And you do not need the light of the moon when the sun has arisen.